You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Well, today is Epiphany Sunday on the, uh, what they call the traditional church calendar. We're not a very liturgical church, but we do track with the church calendar often, like we do Advent and that kind of thing. Today is Epiphany. It's usually the first Sunday after New Year's, and it primarily commemorates the visitation of the Magi, the so-called wise men, to Bethlehem. And their Epiphany, their realization, because, you know, Epiphany means, well, I've got the Webster's dictionary's uh, definition here, a sudden manifestation or realization of the essential nature or meaning of something. You all get with what an epiphany is. Well, Epiphany Sunday is called Epiphany because the Magi have this epiphany, this realization that Jesus, this baby Jesus under this celestial event, the Bethlehem star, is in fact the king of Israel, the Messiah. This was their epiphany. This is why we call this Epiphany Sunday. But the real epiphany, the real epiphany, I think, of Epiphany Sunday, the real epiphany of the Magi's visitation, isn't just that Jesus was the so-called king of Israel, but that Jesus revealed God's all-inclusive love, even for Gentiles and pagan astrologers from Persia, which is what the Magi were. The visitation of the Magi was intended to fulfill this passage found in Matthew's gospel, but also found in in Luke's gospel. This, This passage that says that Jesus will be a light of revelation to the Gentiles, meaning that he was to reveal because keep in mind, these, these texts were written in a Jewish context to say that he was a light of revelation to the Gentiles. It means that he was to reveal God's radical, all-inclusive love for everyone, especially those on the margins, on, on the so-called outside of what people believe to be the community of God. In Jesus' Jewish context, that meant the Gentiles, those who had been previously categorized by religious law, as being separate, as being other than, as being outside the family of God, the community of God. The Magi, of course, were Gentiles. They weren't just many Gentiles. They were Zoroastrian priests. From per- They were clergy from a foreign religion that practiced astrology as a means of divining messages from God or the gods. That's why they follow the Bethlehem star. Bob, could you turn down my channel? I'm hearing kind of a, a feedback. Thank you. So here we have Zoroastrian priests, clergy from another religion, being beckoned, called, you might say, invited to Bethlehem to pay homage to the infant Jesus. Here they are included as honored guests at the crib of Christ. Of all the people, think about it, of all the people who could have been given this honor in this story of being called to Bethlehem to visit the baby Jesus, this honor wasn't given to some prominent Jewish leaders or clergy, wasn't given to the high priest in Jerusalem. 
He wasn't called. He wasn't there. No, it was given to Gentiles, and not just any Gentiles, but Zoroastrian priests, pagan astrologers. And again, their presence only makes sense in this story when one understands that Jesus is defined in Matthew's gospel and Luke's, for that matter, even though the Magi are present in Luke, to be clear. But nevertheless, Jesus is called in the nativity stories a light of revelation to the Gentiles, a light of God's, a revealing of God's love for all, especially those on the margins or who previously were not seen through religious law as the people of God, as beloved children of God. These now are welcome and included and are revealed to be under the light of God's love to be God's children. That's the epiphany, really. That's the epiphany of Epiphany Sunday. The epiphany I think we're supposed to have. And I spoke on this already during Advent. If you were here during Advent or at Christmas Eve service, I, you, you've heard me say this. And I don't really want to focus on, on this today, but it warrants a mention because today is Epiphany Sunday and that's the meaning of Epiphany. And that's an important epiphany, an important epiphany or realization for us to have, but not the only one. I believe our lives are supposed to be full of such profound spiritual epiphanies, such revelations or realizations that cause us to grow, develop spiritually. And that's what I want to focus on today. I want to focus on the power and the importance of spiritual epiphanies in general and how they're, they're integral to our spiritual development and growth. I think the life of faith, our spiritual journey, is supposed to be marked by these moments or these, these events, these experiences called you know, spiritual epiphanies, spiritual awakenings, you might say, or um, realizations, where we realize or understand some previously unknown profound truth about God the nature of reality, ourselves, the world. I think that's part of what the life of faith is supposed to be about, these events, these experiences, these epiphanies. And, and an epiphany can be like a lightning strike moment, right? It can be like a sudden realization. But I think more often than not, they're unfolding slow processes whereby we come to realize something important and new and integrate that into our lives. But there can also still be a kind of aha moment to it. Don't get me wrong. I think that's still part of it. And I can point to certain epiphanies in my spiritual journey, and I think you probably can too. I'd like to hear that in a few minutes in our discussion portion. But I can point to certain epiphanies in my journey that set me on a new course or changed my reality, my understanding of God, the world, myself, the scripture. And for me, there were there were four such epiphanies in my life. And I'm just going to share my story with you this morning. You like stories, right? Everybody likes stories. So I'll share, uh, you might have heard some of these before. Maybe not. The first epiphany I really had, well, let me put it like this. There's been lots of epiphanies, right? But I'm going to give you the four major ones in my spiritual journey as, as an adult. The first one I had was 
gosh, 22 years ago, 2002, when I was in college. I was an undergraduate Bible major at a small Christian conservative university in Nashville, Tennessee, called Lipscomb Church of Christ. Taylor knows he grew up that way. Um, and uh, as part of my major, I was a Bible major, big surprise, right? Uh, I had to choose a minor in a related field of ministry, and so I chose preaching as my minor, who said college never pays off, right? But it was in my preaching classes that I first encountered philosophy, that demon called philosophy. <laughs> Gets you in a lot of trouble in a good way. But even in this conservative Christian university, my, what was called a homiletics professor, homiletics is a fancy academic term for preaching, uh, the practice of preaching. My homiletics professor, Dr. York, we all, I don't know about you, but you probably had teachers in your life that left an indelible impression upon you in a good way. Um, I certainly had a few. Dr. York in my undergraduate studies was one of them. And he knows it, I've told him. But it was there in my homiletics classes where I first encountered philosophy. He introduced that to us as a means of understanding, you know, why do we preach? What does it mean to preach and teach out of this ancient text? And one of the most important things I learned, which was an epiphany for me, was that we all come to the text with lenses, with biases and presuppositions that were given to us unconsciously, we carry these lenses, by our culture, our family, the churches we grew up in gave us these lenses. And we can't help but understand the text, preach the text, or understand God and what it means to be even human or to be a Christian. We can't understand any of those things separate from the lenses from which we bring. And again, these things are often unconscious. We're not even, not even aware we're looking through the lenses. You don't see the lenses, but we see everything through the lenses. Understanding that, being being confronted with that truth was a, an epiphany for me because I grew up a fundamentalist. You know, I grew up thinking there's only one right way of, you don't even interpret the text. The text interprets itself, I believe. And I was taught, right? Text, the text. The Bible interprets itself. You just read it. It just, you just read it. it. Says what it says. There's no, there, there, there's a, you know, there's a perfect way of reading it. You just read it. Of course, that doesn't explain 40,000 different Christian denominations, right? And all of the controversies within the early church and over the last 2,000 years, right? But so understanding this was an epiphany for me because it opened up the world. It opened up my mind. It made me realize that, you know, I can, I can take different points of view seriously. There's not just one perfect or right way of reading the Bible or understanding God or faith or spirituality. There's a, there's a bunch and I can be open to that. I can embrace that. That was life-changing for me. And it led me to my um, to a, a second epiphany. And all of these are kind of related. Major epiphany I had about five years later in 2000. Emily and I had moved to Los Angeles. I was attending Fuller at that time. So getting a master's in, in divinity. And I had written an article for an online Christian magazine called Relevant, if you're familiar with Relevant magazine. The article was about how the church needs to take science seriously. At that point in my journey, I really believed one of the biggest downfalls in the church was the church 
wasn't taking science seriously and was uh, essentially alienating people and and uh, putting themselves into a position where nobody could relate to theology anymore or Christian teaching. So anyway, I wrote this article about how we need to take science seriously as people of faith. And someone in the comment section asked a question that changed my life. They have no idea, by the way. I don't know who they are, but they have no idea that their question changed my life. And I won't get bogged down. I thought about question is and explain why it was so profound. And then as more I did that, it was a total rabbit trail. So I won't do that. If you're interested in what the question was, just ask me. I'll tell you. That's not top secret. But that question changed my life because, because again, it changed my thinking about God, Jesus, the Bible, the cross, everything, ministry, everything. It was one of those huge epiphanies, right? And it led me to my third epiphany about five years later. For some reason, these epiphanies track every five years. I noticed that. Um, not intentional. Uh, third epiphany about five years later in 2012, when I was the teaching pastor here at Central, it was then that Max, there you go, introduced me to the work of Peter Rollins. Uh, some of you know, right? Um, we, we had dinner one night, uh, the four of us here, yeah. And Max said, Aaron, you got to see this guy's videos on YouTube. It's really interesting. He showed it to me, right? And uh, I ordered Peter's book, The Idolatry of God, his best book, in my opinion. And I read it in 24 hours. It's like that. And it completely changed me. And I don't know why I'm having an emotional experience right now, but it did. Um, and so... Um, And it's out there on the shelf. <laughs> Not to say if you read it, it's going to do to you what it did to me, right? But um, if you're out, if you're interested, it's on the bookshelf in the foyer. But again, it changed me once again in the ways that I think about God and the and Christianity and Jesus and the Bible and all of that. And it was part of this journey I've been on over the last twenty years. These three epiphanies weren't unrelated or discordant with each other. They were like stepping stones on the same path, the, the path of my personal growth and development as a Christian, as a person of faith, as a pastor, all of that. And the fourth and final major epiphany I want to share with you today was, was less of a specific moment, a specific event, and more of, an, of a process of becoming that I'm still experiencing today. And it has to do with my embrace of, of mysticism, particularly Christian mysticism, and my conviction that the most important story we can tell as people of faith, or just as people in general, I think, but the most important story we can tell is a story of oneness and connection, our oneness and our connection to everything. That's the epiphany I've had more than any other over the last few years. And, and it's a story I want to tell more than any other. Because it's a true story. And it's a universal story that transcends culture and religion, even time and space. It's a story about, frankly, our cosmic nature. We are cosmic. You've heard me talk before about how our bodies are made of stardust. This is just a, a physical fact. We are comprised of stardust, entirely of the remnants of disintegrated stars that died billions of years ago, 
which is a pretty amazing idea when you think about it. But we're but we're alive, right? And so this means that we are living, thinking, feeling stars. Think about that for a moment. We are living, thinking, feeling stars. Wow. We are the universe contemplating itself. And one, and one of the things we can contemplate and understand is that we are connected to everything and everyone. We are eternal. We are because we are cosmic. To me, this is the biggest story ever told, and it's inherently meaningful because it's a story about connection and oneness and the eternal nature of that connection and that oneness. And I don't know all that that means. A lot of that's steeped in mystery, but it is profound. Yeah, we're this tiny little speck floating out in space, and we are just these tiny little creatures on this tiny little speck. But we are connected to everything in the very fabric of our of our being. And I mean that not just physically true, but mentally and consciously true. We are connected on all these levels, not just one level. It's not just we're just stuff like everything else is stuff and we're made of the same stuff. We are living, thinking, feeling stuff. That's amazing. And yeah, we're small, but when you think about it, we're, we're cosmic because we're connected to all of that forever. When we die and our bodies disintegrate, we become physically one with the nature of all things once again. But what about our consciousness and the energy that we call our consciousness? Well, energy never dies. It just changes form. I don't know what all that means, but I am floored by it. And I am moved by it. And I think it's inherently meaningful because it's a story of connection and oneness. What's more profound than that? This is the story, the spiritual story that we need to be telling, especially in our post-evangelical, post-theistic, and for some of you, post-Christian context. This is the story. The story of not just us, the story of everything, the story of God. And here's the other cool thing about this story. It's a story found in countless religions and spiritual traditions and philosophies over the centuries. It's perennial, meaning it's everywhere. It pops up like mushrooms or like perennial flowers in the spring. They just always come back. You find them everywhere. You find this story everywhere because I think it's intuitive. We know it in the fabric of our beings. It's just part of what it means to be human, to be conscious, to be sentient, to be alive. You just know it. The story of our connection, our oneness. It's who we are, I believe. We may choose to forget this story or repress it for one reason or another, but it's always there waiting for us to rediscover it. This has been my spiritual epiphany over the last few years. And it's part of a long trail of epiphanies. It's the end of a long journey. And by that, I don't mean that, you know, I've arrived and I've got nothing left to learn or discover and that I've got all the answers. No, no, there's always more to learn. There's always more to experience. 
and no, but I, I think there's a kind of finality to this fourth epiphany that I'm describing because it's about realizing that the ultimate spiritual truth is love and connection and oneness. It's about realizing this. The, the, the ultimate spiritual truth isn't this religion or that religion. It isn't this God or that God or no God. The ultimate spiritual truth isn't atheism or theism or agnosticism, but the embrace of a great mystery. The embrace of awe and wonder itself for life and being. The embrace of connection and love and being itself. That's the ultimate truth, I think. Tell me another. Tell me another deeper truth than the story of love and connection and oneness and being itself. Whatever helps you get there, whatever philosophy or religion or theology, physics or metaphysics helps you get there is good and true. Christianity is the vehicle, the tradition that I grew up in that I still identify with and that works for me. And I know it works for a lot of you still too. But at the base, it's a story of oneness and connection and love, the love of God and our connection to God, ultimate reality, a oneness with that in all things. To put it another way, in the words of a friend of mine, Richard Young, he says this, many of us spend years diligently trying to return home to what we imagine will be a play of peace and bliss. This is really the story of a lot of people's spiritual journey. It's, it's a journey of trying to return home to what we will imagine be a place of perfect peace and bliss, or we quit the search and disgust and drop out of the spiritual life in despair. Either way, there is one thing that is true about all of us. We have never taken so much as one step away from home. How could we? We are our home. The prodigal son never journeyed to the far country. Alice never went down the rabbit hole. And Dorothy never actually went to Oz. They only dreamed of these frightening adventures. You are still here, safe in your bed, and surrounded by love. If you have grown weary of your imaginary travels, why not open your eyes? In other words, why not open your eyes to the truth that you are enough? That you always, you are always and forever connected to the source of all life and being the source of unconditional love. You need to go somewhere or become somebody else in order to realize this. Just open your eyes. It's right here. You know, scripture says, the word of God is closer than your next breath. The kingdom of God is within you. There's nowhere to go. There's no one to become. You are enough. You are always and forever connected you were always inside the father's love, which to me is really the meaning of the prodigal son story. He comes home and the father, even before he says a word, runs down the road to embrace his son, showing that there's never been really any estrangement. He never really left home. 
He was always safe in his father's love. This is the, our story, the ultimate story. You are enough. You are connected. You are loved. Embrace it. Know it. And be healed. You know, it's interesting. The, ma the Magi returned to Persia after visiting the baby Jesus. They didn't move to Israel. They didn't become Jews or Christians for that matter. No, after having their epiphany of seeing God in the flesh, they returned to their lives back in Persia. They remained as they were, Zoroastrian priests, because the idea that they needed to become someone else to connect with God apparently never crossed their minds. This is the kind of epiphany we really all need to have. An epiphany of unbreakable connection to God the source of all being and love. And for us as Christians, our sacrament, the Lord's Supper, is a way that we acknowledge that and embody that and, and practice that by receiving the Lord's Supper, which of course symbolizes in broken bread and the cup, God's body and blood. It's Jesus's body and blood. In the Christian story, he was crucified, his body broken and shattered, and then scattered among us as bread and wine. Bread and, wine. and as Christians, we consume that as a way of saying, God now lives in me, and my connection to God is unbreakable. God is everywhere. He's scattered among us as bread and wine. He's in the very fabric of wheat and grapes, which is to say, he's in the fabric of everything. This is the ultimate epiphany and spiritual revelation found here in the ancient Christian tradition of the Eucharist, communion. Even the word communion means to be at one, to be in community. These are all the same thing. Story of connection and oneness and love, our connection with God and our connection with each other and all things. This is why we serve each other communion here. It's not me, the priest, so-called, serving you, all of you. No, you serve each other. You are God for each other. We are God for each other. We are all connected. We are all one. That's why we do this. Let us meditate on that now as we partake. And for those of you who are new, the way we do this here is you take a little gluten-free cracker and you dip it in the alcohol-free grape juice. You receive it. You serve the next person and you are welcome to participate, regardless of who you are, what you believe or don't believe. You are welcome at the Lord's table. Be blessed now in this. Each episode of the Central Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. If you'd like to participate in recordings, or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. Here's this week's unedited discussion. All right, so questions, comments, um, just open it up per use. If you're new here, we always have a discussion at the end of our time together, because it's not all about just listening to me talk or learning from me. We learn from each other.
Um, but yeah, any questions or comments about anything I spoke on? Um, I also want to invite you. I would love to hear your story this morning. And maybe if, if you're comfortable, you don't have to, obviously, share what some of your epiphanies or an epiphany for you, spiritual, philosophical, whatever, that you've had that set you on a new course. Um, but yeah, and any questions or comments or stories? Okay, Leanne. I love the look in your face. Like, eh, I'll go. That's cool. No one else was raising their hands, so I thought I would. Um, I just remember, you know, fresh out of college, Leanne, who it just Rob Bell in particular, and that being the doorway to Joseph Campbell, and yeah, thanks, Rob. Um, but yeah, I remember being exposed to like Numa and all of that in youth groups. So like, there was that. Think if I mean you know lucky to have that in my like youth group experience where it wasn't so iron grippy, um, but I just remember like Rob's writings and then also you know Joseph Campbell's writings where it's like oh like Noah's flood that was maybe you know not one specific event but we're writing about you know an archetypal flood an archetypal thing and as soon as that started I was like wait so that means that like. The like the resurrection could be potentially archetypal, could be, you know, felt on a spiritual rather than maybe a literal level. Not saying, I mean, I don't know, maybe it literally happened, but just opening that doorway and at the time that being both really scary, but also like what, like it's just like never having really thought about it that way before. Good stuff. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Other comments? Yeah, Emily. So I guess, Aaron, you were there for my epiphany. Um, yeah. Uh, I guess I never realized like what the epiphany, until right now, actually. I'm having another epiphany about my epiphany. Um, <laughs> so meta. I know. It's like, my epiphany was realizing that there is no all powerful God. Right. So, but, and you know how hard that was for me. <laughs> um, but realizing that like, that was the answer to all the questions that I had had, like, and, and too, like what you were saying, where it was like, these people didn't need to change to be close to God or, you know, and, that always didn't make sense to me because in the churches that I grew up, as I'm sure a lot of us did, like you were saved and then all of a sudden you were a different person. And I was like, but doesn't it feel right in here? You know, like that, why are you different? Why aren't you just the same? But now maybe you're, you'll try harder. Maybe you'll, you know, do things differently. Maybe you'll change your habits. Like, why are you now your hair's brushed to the side and you got a tie on when last week you were in a flannel with these, you were smoking cigarettes in the parking lot. Like wh what? So, yeah, I mean, I guess I didn't realize that, that epiphany sort of answered all of the questions and things that I never like that never hit for me. Like I was always just like, what's, what's happening, but it all made sense after that where it was like, Oh, no one's coming for us. Like we have to wake up every single day and do our best. And I think that that's what the 
like my mom's Christianity is missing because it's the, it's more her relationship with him. It's not her relationship with us, with everyone else. And I think that when you realize there is no all powerful God, then you go, oh, so this is important. This is important that, you know what I mean? You're like, oh, I got to be there for people, you know, as if that's somehow antithetical to Christianity. <laughs> it's, yeah. but it's when you don't put all those things together. And I realize, like, how are you an expert? If all you read is one book, you're not right. And you're reading one book that, like you said, it's, you know, my mom swears she's literal. It's not possible, not possible, but because it's one book and that book says blah, 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 you know, she's literal. And that's what the church I grew up in was they're literal. So it's, it's just, a, it's an interesting thing that you would not think to read other books and read and do other research and learn other things and educate yourself. You're not an expert. Yeah. Thanks. Emily. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Somebody else. Oh, okay. Yeah. Hey, Jen, welcome back. <laughs> uh, so I missed the last of it and then the beginning of the conversation, but I definitely had something to say. Um, yeah, I know. Um, epiphanies. So I think the epiphany that Ashley and I have been talking about a lot since we've had this one is the love of God, because it's described as, you know, that God loves us like his children. Right. And now that we have a child, um, that imagining the love of God as this kind of, you have to act this way to earn it. And you have to be this certain person. And if you're not like that, then he's going to, he's punitive and will punish you and, you know, push you away. All these things doesn't make any sense anymore, you know, because I would never do that to her. You know, I would never, I will love her forever, always, no matter what. You know, whoever she is, whoever she decides to be, you know? Um, yes, yes. And so we really are thinking about the love of God in a very different way now, you know, as, you know, God loves us when we mess up and when we do stupid things or when we do things and we hurt other people and we don't realize it or whatever it may be, it's like God still loves us as if we are his children. So that's kind of like the epiphany that we're, we've been talking about a lot recently. So, yeah. No, that's, that's, that's the ultimate epiphany. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. No, I, I you know, it, it hit me like a ton of bricks when that kind of happened to me too in the sense that I, I grew up in, even as a, even when I was a pastor at this church, I, um, I didn't understand that for love to really be love, for love to really be love. And it's in like the most purest sense, it has to be unconditional. It has to be, you know, and, and even, even, uh, you know, Jesus says that, you know, if you only love those who love you, what, what credit is that to you? Anybody can do that. You only lend to those who can pay you back. What credit is that to you? Anybody can do that. But if you love your enemies, 
this is love, which is a picture of God's love for us, not that we're the enemies of God, but it's a picture of a parent's love, a father's love, a mother's love for their child, which ideally has this unconditionality to it because it's only love. It is only love in the purest sense if it's given without the, the expectation of it being returned reciprocated. Because otherwise, then it's a quid pro quo, this for that. So anyway, I think that's beautiful, and I think that's innately healing. I think that's innately healing. I think it makes us, into, frankly, better people, more more godly people. When we And I'm not saying that this is the, you know, love means different things in different contexts, but if we can live into that unconditionality in different, in different contexts, that's it's beautiful. And what, what, what could be better than that? Anyway, thank you, Jen, for I don't mean to preach, but thank you. Um, somebody else, yeah. Uh. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, let us conclude our service, as we always do, by saying this joint benediction together. Will you join me in this now? As we go from this place... We commit ourselves to the path of love, honesty, and humility. We dedicate ourselves, as Christ did, to the cause of justice and the courageous embrace of this life, this world, and each other. Amen. Go in peace, friends. Mm -hmm.